Once upon a time, in a land far away, I'm Katrina, and I'm Jeff, and welcome to the Fairy Tellers Podcast. Myth, legend, folklore, fable. We explore what they say about cultures then and now. Grab a hot cup of cocoa and a comfy seat while we retell you a thing. Welcome back to the podcast. We've got a few fun things to talk about before we get into the episode, and we've got a great episode, so let's just get right into it. That's what I say. So the first and most important uh, bit of info is a reminder that on April 29th on Instagram, we are doing a live and we're going to be doing Fifth Friday Fable Fest live on Instagram, which should be woo, awesome. Woo, woo, woo. Yeah, I'm excited. It'll be new. It may be terrible. It may be amazing. We don't know. That's yeah. what's so exciting about it. Yeah. We will be starting at 8.30 p.m. Eastern time to make sure Jeff's kids are in bed. <laughs> which they probably won't be. You might see and or hear them. But it just adds to the fun of live broadcasting baby you never know what you're gonna get wild animals making appearances children yeah hopefully my cats make an appearance that people the internet loves cats the internet does love cats my dog would be really hard to get on because one the door will probably be closed to my office and two she just likes to sleep on the floor behind me or eat garbage. Yeah. Just put a big pile of garbage right there on your desk. <laughs> Lure her in. Yeah, so please come and join us if you want to see a dog eating garbage on a live stream. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we'd love for you to join us. It'll be a lot of fun. It's going to be interactive. It's a fifth Friday Fable Fest. We're going to be telling some fables. We're going to be getting people's opinions on what they think the morals should be or what they think about the morals or just what they think about the story. So I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And we hope that you join us. That's that's the plug. That's the plug. So our next important announcement is that we are going to be taking a break from posting in May. People might have noticed that our last episode came out late and it has been kind of a struggle in this new year for us to kind of get our schedule the way that we need it to be um just because of like life changes and different stuff that's like going on you people understand and so we're taking may off as a break just so that we can kind of recalibrate we haven't taken a break since we started the podcast back in september of 2019 which is crazy. It feels yeah. like a lifetime ago. It does. A pandemic will do that to you. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy to think, you know, 70 episodes consistently, regularly. Oh, yeah. And more than that, because we have bonus episodes, which you can find if you come and support us over on Patreon. So it's like, yeah, it's, but we've, it's been a lot. And so yeah. a break would be really nice. Yeah. So we are taking just May off. We will be back posting regularly June 10th because we've kind of switched our schedule to be the second and fourth Friday of every month. So June 10th, we'll be back both of our episodes in April and then our 
Fifth Friday Fable Fest live on Instagram and then taking May off and then back June 10th to regularly posting. So like the Instagram live is going to be kind of like the big finale before the hiatus for just a month, you know, like yeah. the, the season finale. And then you got to wait a whole month till we find out what happens next. We'll leave you on a cliffhanger, <laughs> which may I, be a perfect segue into our next bit of information. Oh, about, 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 about Mr. G. Oh, Scott. how, yes. <laughs> about the like big cliffhanger that we did with Mr. G's commercial back in our uh, snow queen episode. So, this year, we said that we were going to be, you know, taking people's story requests and answering people's questions. And one question that we were not expecting to get asked <laughs> that is technically related to the podcast was about Mr. G's pizza. We got the question, is Mr. <laughs> G's pizza real? And I've actually gotten this question several times, both from people who are like friends of mine and other like longtime listeners of the podcast. So, <laughs> so thank you to um, all of our OG listeners of the podcast and the people who have like binged us from start to finish in the first, man, I want to say it was like the first eight months, something like that of the podcast from September when we started to, I think it was May of 2020 when we did some episodes for the Nepal youth foundation. Mm -hmm. In that gap of time, we ran a mid-episode ad for Mr. G's Pizza. And, <laughs> and and if you have heard the ads, you would know why people are asking if it's real. Because the ads were ridiculous and they definitely sound like they were ads for a fake restaurant. Yeah, but it's not a fake restaurant. It is a very, very real restaurant. Yes, it is. A very real restaurant in Joseph City, Arizona, a tiny little town on Route 66. And for just a little fill-in for people who don't know what we're talking about with Mr. G's Pizza, they were the ads we ran. And in the ads, we would constantly basically throw shade at an employee of Mr. G's Pizza named Andy. And we would just like insult him and say mean things about him. Like and that he was he was gonna kidnap you. <laughs> yeah. No, not that he was gonna kidnap you, but that you were gonna act, like he was gonna hide in your trunk of your car. Yeah, we would just that, say like really he, weird things. Yeah, that he had been abducted by aliens. And yeah, it's like at Mr. G's Pizza. When you're here, your family, except for Andy, he just works here. <laughs> 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 Stuff like that. And if you listen to our end credits, the music for our podcast is done by one Andy. Forey. I think and, we say Andrew Forey. Oh, do we say Andrew? Yeah, we give him is, like proper name credit. Yeah, so Andrew Forey is Andy, and he's our friend. He does the music for the podcast, and he actually, and Andy was in reality an employee at Mr. G's Pizza, in addition to his, you know, full-time job. Um, so when we were first um, making the podcast... Jeff and I were talking with like some of the other of our friends, including like Andy. And he had said like, oh, I could do the music for your podcast. That would be no problem. And we were like, oh, my gosh, it's amazing. That's super great. And he was like, oh, and also to make your podcast sound like more legit, maybe you should have like some sponsored ads, maybe for like Coca-Cola or Nike or something. And he was naming like 
big brand names where I was like, if we make any commercial, like we just didn't want to get some weird cease and desist letters from any big corporations that found out, especially because we wanted to make the commercials like a little more like reflective of us and our podcast. Yeah. And so without telling him, (laughs) uh, Jeff and I decided what we were going to do was make commercials for Mr. G's pizza, which is literally the only restaurant that is inside of Joseph city, Arizona. It's a small, just like on the, in the commercials that we made, it's a small town on route 66, nine miles away from Holbrook near the petrified forest. So the only time that, you know, people are kind of tourist driving past there is if they're going to like tourist places like that. And so he works there part time because the restaurant is, and we say this in the commercial, only open Thursday, Friday and Saturday. So it started off just as this kind of like joke almost and yeah. like sort of a prank on our friend Andy because he didn't know that we were going to be doing this but also legitimately like promoting a business that we like and care about we've eaten at Mr. G's Pizza and it actually yeah. is like really good and yeah. if you are happen to be driving through and that was the other thing too like to us it was really funny to me at least to think of doing this ad that this place would sponsor a podcast that's like it's very unlikely that many of the listeners of our podcast have ever been within like 200 miles of this yeah. place to even try to go to it. And I knew that was likely to be the case and it just like delighted me to no end. So we, you know, had a series of these ads and it kind of started like building up. There's sort of a little bit of a storyline going on and we ended up somewhat leaving it on a cliffhanger. But then when we did the Nepal Youth Foundation episodes, we decided not to run an ad in the middle because we didn't want to make it seem like, because the Nepal Youth Foundation was also going to be promoting um, the episodes that we did for them. And we didn't want to make it look like we were going to get any kind of like cash back. Even though Mr. G's Pizza was not paying us. <laughs> but Mr. We didn't G's Pizza wanna... was not paying us, nor were they aware that we were doing these ads <laughs> for their establishment. So we like, but we just didn't want to make it seem like we were going to be getting any kind of like compensation for doing those episodes for the, the Nepal Youth Foundation. And so we didn't put any ads in those episodes. And then we kind of didn't put any in for a while. We were just like, oh, that's totally fine. And then in December of 2020, we did the Snow Queen and we kind of did a commercial that left the situation on like a cliffhanger (laughs) where there was like a hostile takeover of like Mr. G's Pizza. And that's because our friend Andy actually ended up uh, buying Mr. G's Pizza, the business, the people who had owned it for over 25 years were retiring and moving to live closer to their kids and their grandkids. And so they sold the business and they sold it to Andy. (laughs) So now it's like, not only is Mr. G's Pizza definitely real, but uh, our friend Andy now owns that business. And now that like the owner of the business knows that we were making ads for them (laughs) and is okay with it, we have zero interest in making any more ads for Mr. G's Pizza. I was going to say, and once he purchased it, he sent us a cease and desist letter. (laughs) (laughs) No, that'd be hilarious. That Um, would be hilarious. So there you go. There is the answer. Mr. G's Pizza is real. And if by chance you happen to be somewhere where it's convenient to stop by, definitely do. 
and mention the Fairy Tellers podcast and see what happens. It would just be a delight to hear back from someone from Mr. G's, like that someone from our podcast came in and actually patronized this wonderful establishment. And now on to the rest of the episode. <laughs> and now for something completely different. And so that obviously is not the bulk of this episode. That's not that's not the listener request that uh, is going to make up the bulk of this episode. This episode I'm super excited about because by far our most requested like episode topic where people just like throw out like the idea. They're just like more geomythology. And I love it when people ask for a geomythology episode because it makes complete sense because those are the episodes that we have done that also get the most feedback from people where it's like when people list their favorite episodes that we've done, like 85% of the time within that list of their favorite episodes are the geomythology episodes. And so the kind of more recent uh, requests to cover this topic have kind of been led on by this recent rock in Japan that busted open that is supposed to have trapped an evil yokai inside of it. And I love also that this story came from Japan because I lived in Japan for two years. The episodes of this podcast that have been like led by me and researched by me, two of the three were from Japan. And even like the geo, one of the geomythology episode, one of them was on um, tsunamis. And so yeah. Japan was even where one of our first geomythology episodes kind of like focused. So if you haven't heard about this story, what happened was there is this giant stone in Japan called the Sesho Seki stone. And there's this whole bit of folklore around this rock that. So according to the kind of like story in this article, they say mythology, but I'm like, is it mythology? Because mythology implies like religion and also world building and so it's like is it part of a world building mythology i I, in some ways i kind of feel like it is because like with japan like and like shinto again being like tied into religion it's like there are spirits inside of everything lots of rocks and trees and mountains so they're like again perfect place for geomythology so the article that i'm referring to is from the Guardian, but they say mythology, and I think they say so correctly that there's like the mythology around it that this stone, also known as the Killing Stone, contains kind of like the transformed corpse and therefore the spirit of this woman who had been part of a plot that was trying to kill the emperor of Japan in the 1100s. But then there's also the story that this person, this woman, was actually not just a woman, but she was a yokai, like a mythical kind of creature in Japan that was actually like a nine-tailed fox. And these nine-tailed foxes are like able to shapeshift into human form and they're like magical and they're always up to mischief and stuff like that. And part of this story is that if you touch this stone, like you die. They're also saying that it's like trapping this evil spirit within it. And so the fact that the stone that contains something that if you touch the stone will kill you has split open and the thing that was trapped inside may not be trapped inside anymore is like kind of scary and spooky to people. And also like how often do you see just giant rocks randomly 
splitting <laughs> in half, let alone ones that have such a rich story behind them. Yeah. And it's interesting because, like, I feel like ever since, like, 2020, people have been very superstitious. Anything that looks even, like, remotely scary or mysterious, we're taking it as a sign of impending doom, which is also, like, folklore-wise very interesting. And so I feel like this rock, it was just, like, very bad timing. Yeah, I mean... Could it have not waited until we were back in a better mood and more more yeah. capable of be, of paying attention to like okay, there's now a demon on the loose that we have to go back and like retrap into the stone, which yeah. is is funny because that's actually part of the conversation right now. Is this this stone became like kind of a bit of a tourist attraction because there's this whole story behind it. It's a cool way to kind of come and interact with you know the the folklore and the and history of Japan. Yeah. And now it's like split in two. And it's like, that's in one way part of the story. But like we've said, we're inclined to see it as a sign of doom. And plus, like when you un- when something that's a cage for a demon cracks open, it's the logical conclusion. Would be like that thing is out and loose um, and wreaking havoc. So like some people are like, what are we going to do with it? Some people are just like, oh, that's really sad. Like it's a it's a symbol of our area. But what can you do? Like rocks break. That's a part of life. And there's other people who are saying like tourism officials, they want to put it back together. And like part of that idea of like putting it back together is like, again, continuing the story of like putting it back together and also sealing that evil spirit, that yokai back inside of it, which is just a really interesting. Yeah. Kind of like way to interact and continue the story. Yeah. It's like. Instead of it just being like, oh, here's an object and it has this like folklore story attached to it that people come and they're like, oh, yeah, cool. And they look at the rock and they're like, oh, don't touch it, because if you touch it, the the belief is that, you know, you'll die or whatever. And then it breaks. (laughs) And now it's this like idea of like oh no the story the mythology the folklore around this it continues yeah but now like because we have lived to see it happen we're like part of the story in like a weird way or that now so many people know the story and so it it is this idea of like do we put it back for tourism's sake do we put it back for belief sake is there like a ritual around which it can be put back in to where we're honoring kind of the original story like it's just like a very fascinating situation to have happened yeah and part of that that is interesting too that somewhat complicates it is this story has been around for a long time i i don't know how long the story's been around obviously the events that kind of inspired it as far as the attempted assassination of the emperor was back in, you know, 1100 AD. Mm-hmm. But there was somehow within this story too, that the actual stone that contained this demon was already destroyed. And a Buddhist monk had, you know, exercised the demon from it and then scattered those pieces of the stone across Japan to kind of like, you know, disseminate the evil from within the rock or whatever, you know? So there, there is already part of the story, this element of, of breaking the rock in order to get rid of the evil that's inside of it. So yeah, it's really interesting to be like, 
let's we should put it back together. That seems like the thematically appropriate thing to do. But there's also a part of me that's kind of like, let's just like let that let the story continue on naturally. And it broke open, and now the demon's loose, and like we just suffer the consequences of that. Yeah. I mean, there's this interesting thing, and it is different from this because there's not like a mythology like attached to it. But in the National Park Services, there is this idea of if nature has taken its course, like if nature has damaged or destroyed something, then it is what it is. If like a human being has destroyed something, then something has to be done about it or like whatever. And specifically, there's this time in the petrified forest where this one big petrified tree, um, which was like one of like the largest pieces, I think it was or whatever, it got struck by lightning. And everybody was really upset about it because like, obviously, it was part of the attraction. It was like, you know, to come and see this giant piece of petrified wood. And now it's got a chunk zapped off of it by Zeus. Um, (laughs) That was me purposefully tying a mythology that's not regional to it, but it got zapped by lightning and people are like, put it back together. Can't you glue it back together? (laughs) And it was like, we can, yes, we have the technology. It exists. Yeah, But the park service was basically like, no, I mean, now part of the story is this got hit by lightning. Like, yeah. which is just, a pretty cool part of the story. Yeah. And it, it's just like, yeah, it's just part of like the natural progression of it. And it is, it is more beautiful that what damaged it was like a natural thing of just like, this is how things go in the world that get broken down yeah. and metamorphized into like other things. It's a nice reminder that the natural state of the universe is to devolve into chaos that we are ruled by entropy and that we all must die. Yep. It's beautiful. Also, uh, just a couple more little facts about the Sesho Seki before we move on. Like this has made it a, a worldwide story, but the story of kind of this spirit being trapped in this rock is something that's been decently well-known in Japan. There was like an anime made about it. There was like a no play back in the day made about it. Um, Just recently, days ago, they did decide to do something. So on March 26th, the local government had some priests go over to hold a ceremony over this split rock to appease the spirit that had potentially been let loose. They did prayers. They gave some offerings. And... It says a little while later, I don't know what the time frame on this is, but like a thick mist came over and like covered the area like after the ceremony. Yeah. And so some people are saying like, oh, that's like something supernatural is going on. Like, so it just continues to add on to it. But so yeah. far, the decision that has been made is to leave the rock as it is. But they did do kind of like a, a ceremony in order to appease the spirit that may or may not be loose and trying to terrorize us. Why can't we just, I'm, you know what, this uh, headcanon for me. Like, she did her time, she did her crime, she paid her time inside the rock, and now Mm -hmm. she's able to move on, you know? The unfinished business is now finished, and she's just, like, passed on into the next world. Yeah. And what's fascinating... That's what I believe. Yeah. And what's fascinating about that inside of, like, folklore is how much, like, you don't get to decide that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like, 
like I, I said yeah. that flippantly, but like that is something that's like interesting is that that you're pointing out like the story does continue that like you know when this fog came over the land, but yeah, when this fog like rolled in and people thought like this is something supernatural, the people who are in that area are are doing the the meaning making behind yeah. like what's happening and that's like what's fascinating and also what is informing this i think also again is that we have all collectively around the world lived through a global pandemic and we are all still being like actively traumatized by what's still going on pandemic wise and how different governments are handling it how it's being sorted out. And so we're in the middle of this very upsetting event and like pandemics or big global tragedies, they kind of help to like create and push forward, like just like new stories, new meaning making. And so the fact that this is happening right now, kind of it, it's interesting just that it's happening right now, because like if this had happened I mean, if this had split open December 2019, this probably mm. would have been something that would be, like, remembered of, like, oh, do you remember when this thing happened? It would this be the is Harambe of Japan. <laughs> yes. And to yeah. to add kind of a beautiful little coda onto this story, from all that I can see, the people in the area... And, I, and it's, hope, it's a nice, hopeful note for the world we're in right now is that the the idea is, from all I can gather, that the fact that mist came over the area, the local people are taking as a sign that the purification worked. So yeah. like, even though this like demon could be getting out, the story has become, but it's taken care of and there's something now to be hopeful. Like this thing is actually not a bad omen after all. Yeah, that like, like, okay. But again, like you're saying, it's kind of a sign done. of the world. Yeah. That we're living in at the moment. We're starting yeah. to feel a little more hopeful again, which is nice. Yeah. <laughs> which is nice. So several people sent in like links to articles about this rock to me. And they were asking like, is this geomythology? Like, what do you think about this? Stuff like that. And I absolutely loved it because this is a type of geomythology. Um, there are several different types of categories but what's interesting about the term geomythology is that it is not a folklorist term or definition which is one of the things that we covered in the first episodes so i'm gonna have us just mentally back up a little bit when we first did these episodes back i think it was like november 2019 this these were some of the first yeah it was like episodes episode six and seven that, yeah <laughs> Like, obviously, the first couple episodes that we had done were ones that we were like, oh, people would be really fascinated by this. Cinderella, Aesop's Fables, Momotaro, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, those kind of things. And so when we got to geomythology, which was a subject that I was really interested in talking about, I wasn't expecting it necessarily to be like a heavy hitter, like one that would get downloaded the most. They were some of our lower performing episodes, which is totally fine. But they have always been like fan favorites, <laughs> which I think is really, really awesome because like I loved those stories too. 
You don't need to go back to those episodes to enjoy this episode, but you definitely want to go back and like listen to those episodes when you have a minute because we talked about Crater Lake forming 7,000 years ago and the people who probably watched it collapse. And we talked about like a baby star that crash landed in Australia. So those stories are like just really, really incredible. But to recap what we did learn about geomythology from those episodes. Um, So geomythology is a term that was not coined by folklorists or in a folklore academic journal, but it was actually a geologist named Dorothy Vitaliano. And she wrote about it in a geological academic journal in 1968. And one of the things that drew my interest, like, to this was that my father's a geophysicist. And so he's, you know, dragged his kids all over the world to, like, look at cool rocks. Um, (laughs) And so I was like, oh, this is, like, fascinating. So Dorothy Vitaliano... Um, She coined the term geomythology to describe the study of etiological oral traditions created by pre-scientific cultures to explain in poetic metaphor and mythological imagery, geological phenomena such as volcanoes, earthquakes, floods, fossils, and other natural features of the landscape. In more recent years, in 2004, Adrian Meyer wrote a piece to define geomythology inside of the Encyclopedia of Geology. And Adrian Meyer is a folklorist and a historian of ancient science who investigates natural knowledge contained in pre-scientific myth and oral traditions. And so she was absolutely a perfect person to have, you know, write this section in the Encyclopedia of Geology. And what's cool about it, too, she's a folklorist. (laughs) So we went from, you know, a geologist saying, oh, okay, I think I want to like define this. And then inside of the Encyclopedia of Geology, they hired a folklorist to um, frame that. Inside of the Encyclopedia of Geology, she writes that there are a couple different categories of these geomyths. So the first one is folk explanations of notable geological features. So this is like oddly shaped rocks or mountain ranges. And this is like the rock that's in Japan because it it was like kind of a notable rock Mm -hmm. out that, you know, it was distinguishable from any other rocks like in the area. And it was given like this myth and this story around it. So kind of a very modern example of this is I live in a valley that is surrounded by mountains. <laughs> That's what makes it a valley. <laughs> <coughs> but there's this one mountain that is missing a chunk from the top of it. And it looks like someone took a bite out of it. So my kids call it Cookie Mountain, and we came up with like a story about a giant who got really hungry and thought that Mountain was a cookie, and it took a big bite out of it. So stories like these can be useful to people for like distinguishing and remembering important landmarks. So like in the example of this story, it's like I can say to my kids, like, 
we live by Cookie Mountain, so I know when I'm facing west if I can see Cookie Mountain. So, you know, some of these folk explanations of notable geological features could be really useful to the the groups. Besides simply as like entertainment, they also could help distinguish different landmarks and also have kind of like a meaning-making mythology around the areas that they see. So there's other reasons for these geomyths than just the second type, which is kind of the type that we focused more on um, in our episodes. So the second type of geomyths are descriptions of catastrophic geological events that were witnessed in antiquity. So I want to quote from the Encyclopedia of Geology. It says, Many geomyths contain surprisingly accurate insights into geological processes, as well as important eyewitness data from the distant past. Modern scientific investigations have revealed that much ancient folklore about the Earth was based on rational speculation and understandings grounded in careful observations of genuine but extraordinary physical evidence over time. So, for instance, when Japanese people were talking about like a giant serpent or fish that was like roiling underneath the island of Japan, it obviously sounds completely fantastical to us. But inside those stories are actual like eyewitness accounts of earthquakes and tsunamis. They describe the feeling of being on the land and feeling the up and down rolling ocean movement of being in a uh, in an earthquake in Japan. So the term geomythology is fairly new. Again, it was coined in 1968. Um, but the idea that mythological stories could actually contain historical records in them is not new it is very not new (laughs) um around 300 bc oh my there was a greek mythographer named euhemeris who believed that myths were history in disguise so there were definitely problems with um his theory and how it applied but the like the basic ideas were there that they could look at older stories and try to figure out the the real from the fantastical. Yeah. And other people who used the same lens to look at myths and legends were then called euhemerists. Mm. And one of these people was Palaephatus in the 4th century BC. So again, 300 BC. It's hard to date which of these people came first um, because obviously their writings are like over 2,000 years old. <laughs> and anything that people wrote about them, again, like there's like overlap. But yeah. Pelephatimus, uh had a very interesting take on the legend of Cadmus, who is the founder of Thebes. So this story was already really old when Palifatimus was talking about it. My brain always like put stuff in this category of like ancient. And Uh sometimes I fall into the fallacy of everything that like is like ancient 
happened around the exact same time. (laughs) (laughs) And so just to like kind of point out the dates. So in 1250 BC, there was a letter that was written by a king discussing Cadmus and whether or not he was like a real person. Uh So for us, that was over 3000 years ago. But we have Polyphatimus talking about this story in 400 BC. So this is an over 800 year gap from when that letter that I'm talking about this story being mentioned by this like king. Yeah. And, and the time that Polyphatimus was talking about it. So the story itself, when Polyphatimus was talking about it, could have already been a thousand years old. Right. Man, that's crazy. Yeah. Because in my head... He's like just as old Uh (laughs) because I'm like, oh, he's 2000 years ago, over 2000 years ago. And so, you know, what's another thousand years back? (laughs) (laughs) But it like a thousand years is a massive gap because that's the same as like right Um, now to like when that stone (laughs) lady got trapped in there for trying to assassinate the emperor. Exactly. And that's actually only like 900 years ago, so. And so it's funny because like Polyphatimus was looking at this story and being like, oh, we can use these stories to tell us a lot about like history if we can like dissect the story appropriately. So I'm going to tell the story of Cadmus and the founding of Thebes. (laughs) And we'll give it our best shot. We're going to give what our best shot? Of seeing if we can use it to uh, dissect <laughs> history accurately. <laughs> yep. That's that's our job. <laughs> to act as scholars doing this. Whether it no. is or not, it's what we're going to do. <laughs> I repeat what other scholars have told me. <laughs> or what your cousin has told you. <laughs> <laughs> Never trust a cousin. That's what I learned. So as with all Greek myths, there are multiple accounts throughout times and regions and trying to reconcile them into one like non-contradictory timeline is impossible and it isn't necessary. So I'm mostly skipping over all the parentage of Cadmus for the time being because different places have different accounts. And also who cares? (laughs) Just Just kidding. Sort of. Yeah, but for our purposes, um, it's only kind of relevant to the story for you to know that Zeus is Cadmus's like great grandfather. And I'll mention when that tidbit is important to us. But yes, onto the tale. We're picking up kind of in the middle of the action because in this story, Europa, Cadmus's sister, has gone missing. So Zeus had taken a liking to Europa Mm. and typical typical. and he had hidden himself inside of a herd of their father's cows Cadmus and Europa um so that he could get close to her because he was attracted to her and he's a freaky deaky horn dog um (laughs) she existed therefore he wanted her And when she climbed on top of him, again, as he's in the form of, like, this (laughs) cow, bull, um, he took off running into the sea until they got to the island of Crete. 
This is where it is said she became the first queen of Crete, and this story isn't about Europa or Zeus. But Cadmus's father had found that Europa was missing, and so he sent Cadmus to go and not come back until he found her. Whether because he wasn't able to find his sister or because he didn't want to upset Zeus, Cadmus never returned home. So Cadmus wandered around, and one day he found himself in Delphi. And I would argue that Delphi is famous for one thing in Greek tales, and it is oracles. So the Oracle of Delphi. Mm-hmm. So, quick side note, Delphi was built up around a sacred spring, and we will be discussing some other geomythology about that later. <laughs> yeah. Nice. But when Cadmus went to the Oracle of Delphi, she told him that what he needed to do to fulfill his destiny was to find a cow with a crescent moon on its flank. Those of us who are in the know will tell you that is what they call a cutie mark. (laughs) (laughs) My little moon cow, my little moon cow. Um, So anyway, he had to look for this cutie mark cow. And then follow that cow to wherever it laid down. So after leaving the Oracle of Delphi, Cadmus was on the lookout for this cow with this cutie mark of a crescent moon on its flank. Later in his wanderings, he meets with King Pelagon, the king of Phocis. And King Pelagon presented him with a cow... And on this cow was a cutie mark of a crescent moon. So Cadmus, thrilled to finally found the cutie mark cow, followed it as it wandered about, waiting for it to lie down. And he was guided to Beotia, the land of the cows. And that is where the cow laid down. And so that is where Cadmus founded the city of Thebes. So here's the tidbit where I mentioned that it's important that he can trace his ancestry back to Zeus Mm. is because he founded the city of Thebes. And I'm working on another series of tales that's going to kind of be all around mythical rulers and the divine right of kings. So that's a little teaser. Yeah. I'm excited. Yeah, because cities and countries like so many stories that trace their rulers back to gods it's everywhere it's incredibly fascinating but it is not at all the point of this episode but i just wanted to put that little teaser out there so after this cow had served its purposes cadmus wanted to sacrifice the cow to the gods for their help so he sent some of his companions to a nearby freshwater spring Uh, But this spring was guarded by a water serpent or a dragon. And this water dragon was actually the son of Ares and a water nymph. And when the two companions of Cadmus went to the spring, they were killed by this water dragon. Oh, dang. Yeah. So Cadmus, being the hero of this story, he went and he killed the water dragon. Athena then instructed him to take the dragon's teeth and plant them in the ground. And where he had sown the teeth, out sprang Spartae, which means sown, because he, you know, sowed the seeds and 
or the seeds, <laughs> dragon teeth. Mm. Um, and then these Spartae popped out of the ground. So these Spartae came out of the ground fierce and terrifying, ready to fight, um, and just kind of like attack at random. So Cadmus started throwing stones at them to make them think that they were throwing stones at each other. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. I know. I'm like, it would be, it would be like a really funny slapstick, like, Kind of thing, except that they were, you know, started to, like, kill each other. Yeah. It detracts from the humor. But at the end of the fighting, the five remaining Spartae were the strongest, and those were the men that assisted Cadmus to build the citadel of Thebes. Um, they were also then the founders of the noblest families of that city. So the story goes on with Ares being upset, obviously, because Cadmus, like, killed his son, (laughs) the water dragon. Um, And so then Cadmus has to serve Ares for eight years. And at the end of the eight years, Cadmus is given Ares' daughter, Hermonia, to marry. And they have famous kids with famous stories, but that's not the main focus of, like, what we're talking about. So if we go back to... Our Ehumeris Palifatus in 300 BC, he was saying that stories like this one can be looked at for historical data. And again, like I said, like this story was already probably pushing a thousand years old or more by the time he was talking about it. And one of the things that he believed was that if you stripped away all of the supernatural elements out of the story, then you have a better understanding of history. So instead of like a cow directing Cadmus to this land, you can substitute that Cadmus wanted to build a city on a particular piece of land for whatever reason, like good soil, good ports, like whatever the reason was. And he just, you know, this in the story, it just assigned a supernatural um, reason for that piece of land. Right. But then to get the land, he had to fight a water dragon, except that it probably wasn't a dragon at all, but probably a guy's name that sounded like the name of the dragon. And he was maybe like a really fierce fighter, like a dragon, Uh which this is a very common like lay person view of like myths, legends and folktales, like in general, even today, this idea that you can just like strip away all the fantastical elements then you're left with like the truth. Yeah. But that's, it doesn't take into account like a lot of things. Yeah. (laughs) And just like a degree of logic and common sense. That's like, if they didn't care enough about like the truth of what happened to like, not put supernatural things that literally are impossible into it. Like what makes you think that they're not just changing anything that, you know, even if if it was yeah. based on something true, it's like, how can you trust that any of it is accurate? Like, you can't just be like, oh, just take the fantastical stuff out of it. It's like, you know, there's, I don't know what the basis for th- that argument even is that it's like, I mean, I see how it makes kind of sense. Like, I see how it's easy to believe that. But I also think that if you continue down that same line of thinking that you very quickly come to realize like, oh, wait, yeah, that actually doesn't have a lot of basis in reality. Yeah, like, it's a very problematic, because I know a lot of people who are like, oh, the story of Rapunzel, 
you know, these stories were based on like a grain of truth because maybe in some kingdom there was a woman who had very beautiful hair and she was like locked away for a certain amount of time or like stuff like that. And it's like, no, these stories don't have to be based on anything to exist. Yeah. And so to try to like strip stuff away to look at them as like proof of some history or even to like shoehorn them into stuff that like then you do know about like there it, there's just a lot of problems with like that theory and doing that so Pelly Fatimus had these theories and ideas that were like showing that he's thinking about this kind of stuff mm-hmm. and being like what could these stories be based off of and so those were kind of the things where it's like uh okay buddy no but not quite but There was one thing in the story that he was probably very much spot on about. And that was his theory about dragon teeth. Interesting. Yes. So back in ancient Greece, when people were plowing their fields, sometimes they would plow up these massive jawbones that had huge molar teeth. And they had never encountered an animal that could have teeth that were that massive. Mm -hmm. And so they were labeled as dragon teeth. And they were sold or given to Greek kings who were obsessed with, like, collecting them. Yeah. But then you fast forward to the 4th century BC, which is the time when Palifatimus was talking about this stuff. And also... Alexander the Great is in the middle of expanding his empire. So it is the year 331 BC, and you are in Alexander the Great's army, and you're walking into a battle in Assyria. And this battle was called the Battle of Gagamile. And you encountered, for the first time in your Greek life, (laughs) elephants. Ah... (laughs) Oh my gosh, can you imagine seeing an elephant for the first time? Oh my gosh, no, I can't. Because I was probably like two years old when it happened to me in real life. But it's like, but even then I'd seen pictures, I'd seen stuff. It's like seeing an elephant not knowing that an elephant was a thing would be absolutely insane. And like you're in the middle of like going to war with a place and then you see that they have elephants. (laughs) These elephants, they're is no evidence that they were used in battle, in this battle, when they were first encountered. But it was this encounter when Alexander the Great was like, oh my gosh, I need to get my hands on <laughs> elephants to use for battle. Oh, wow. This is a genius idea. This is like great. But this was the first time that Alexander the Great and people in Greece encountered elephants. Uh-huh. They had never seen them before. Elephants had a long time ago gone extinct and like prehistoric ancestors of elephants had gone extinct and it turned out that those dragon teeth that people were accidentally plowing up in their fields Uh were fossilized elephant teeth wow and so pele fatimus was pretty positive that This idea of planting dragon teeth and people popping up out of the ground was inspired by people who had never known about elephants Mm -hmm. and finding their teeth when they were plowing fields that that it was connected to these like fossilized elephant 
remains. Yeah. And like that is an example of how like fossilized remains have confused people and led them to create stories around animals that they've never seen before that they like can't identify. Yeah. Which it's not the first time it's happened, nor shall it be the last, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked about this like a little bit in our episode 36. It's not one of the episodes that we label a geomythology episode, um, but it's the skeleton hand. And in that, we talked about how like Thomas Jefferson, a founding father of the United States, he didn't know that he owned a fossil of a giant sloth. <laughs> like he thought it was a massive claw from like a massive wildcat that was like roaming the American continent. Uh And so, yeah, it's like fossils confuse people and they have confused people and fossil stories are part of that definition inside of like the encyclopedia of geology of geomyths. And so you have this person in again, fourth century (laughs) BC who's saying, Hey, you know what? I think that this tale that's over a thousand years old already, I think that it's because these people were confused about elephant bones. <laughs> and so like the the idea already existed of like geomythology, mm-hmm. except it wasn't called geomythology. Right. But this idea that like we could look at stories that people were telling and describing their experience and connect them to scientific things and say okay this item was identified back then here's the experience identifying it even though the people identified it wrong yeah they identified it as dragon teeth Uh it still gives us a clue into like what people were finding and when so another quote from the encyclopedia of geology some of the rationalizing deconstructions of hero and monster myths by the greek humoristic Palifatimus may seem contrived, but others, such as his interpretation of the myth of Cadmus, sowing the dragon teeth, are quite sophisticated. Palifatus suggested that the tale represented an ancient misunderstanding of fossil elephant molars, which were frequently found in the ground and treasured by kings in archaic Greece before knowledge was brought back from India by Alexander the Great in the 4th century BC. So this is all to say that the idea of geomythology and using old oral folktales as a way to look at what people were observing at the time the stories were told, it's not a new concept. We have evidence of at least two people in the 4th century BC who are floating it as an idea. Plato around the same time was also wondering if the geology that was described in ancient myths were real accounts of um, geology and coastlines like as they used to look versus how they look now. And even in the fifth century BC in the tragedy Prometheus bound, the storyteller retells the myth of Zeus burying this many headed dragon, which was like the embodiment of primordial chaos under Mount Etna in Sicily. So this was a very active and volatile volcano. And in the play, they were basically saying like, oh, yeah, all that sound coming from that volcano. That's the chaos dragon screaming and beating the ground. (laughs) I love that. 
Like all that hissing and smoke and fire and lava. Yep, the chaos dragon is just trying to escape. So whether that story was saying like they literally believed that this was like under there or it was, you know, just like a fantastical fun take on it is not quite clear. But what it does do is it tells us like these people were very aware of how active that volcano was. And they were making observations about it that we can look back on in today and say, okay, yeah, the, the, the sounds that they're talking about that were coming from under the ground, like those are important observations for us to know about that they were seeing this happening and that they were like aware of it. And yes, they attached, you know, a, primordial chaos dragon as like the (laughs) the why it was sounding like that but it tells us information about that volcano and what these people were witnessing and like experiencing yeah it's it's funny because it's like kind of giving a slight bit of credence back to the guy like just take the mystical stuff out of it and there is truth like yeah just because it's not true and factual doesn't mean that there is not true and factual information within it, which I think is a subtle sounding difference, but like the implications of that are pretty big. It's the difference between being like, this is true, except just in this different language or like the guy accidentally kind of getting it right about, you know, some creatures, gigantic teeth, you know, like that one element is true, not the whole story, you know? Yeah. And similar I'm, with this, it's like there wasn't a creature, there wasn't this dragon, but there were these these sounds that they were hearing are something that's real and it's something that we can learn about like again, geomythology, the geology and what was going on there that we could verify as well in some way. Yeah. I mean, but it's also the difference of saying like, oh, maybe like, you know, the story of Prometheus Maybe there was just a guy who discovered fire and then the king of the town got mad at him. So it wasn't a god, it was the king of a town. And then yeah. they they banished that guy. Maybe that truly happened. And it's like, okay, no. <laughs> like yeah. that yeah, yeah. it's like it's like that doing that is not as helpful as like, okay, what are the Kind of even like the not even taking stripping away like the mythical, but like what were the giant physical things in the story that the people were experiencing? Yeah. Like the I mean, because like you could even say, oh, if we're taking away all the giant stuff that's not likely, then you would take away the giant chaos monster Uh and like, you know throwing it into the ground and then you're kind of like left with absolutely none of uh-huh. the, the importance because it's like no the like the big cataclysmic stuff was actually the stuff that was happening uh-huh. and it's like yes they weren't describing it in the way that or in the terms of how we understand volcanoes like scientifically but they were accurately describing what was happening with the volcano and that it was very big. Mm -hmm. So I do want to note quickly uh, before we move away from the elephant skeletons, elephant skulls are also uh, believed to be 
how the Greek stories had cyclopses in them. Which makes complete sense. Like you Absolutely. say that and you look at an elephant skull and you're like, yep, 100%. Because like without the tusks, like the skull of an elephant. Without the trunk, you mean. Without, yeah, yeah without the trunk and even the, yeah. the tusks, which the tusks could be attached to it still. And probably lots of times are, I guess, because they are bones. I don't know. But I, I mean, I've seen pictures of them without like oh, the yeah. tusks as well. And it's like, it does look roughly humanoid shaped, except for like the big glaring, like one giant hole. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like, that's a, that's a, an understandable and easy uh, leap to make. Yeah. Because like human skulls, we also have a hole in our skull where our nose goes. Yeah. But because elephants, their nose is massive and in the center of their skull on the front. Yeah. And their eye sockets are on the side because that's where their eyes are. Mm -hmm. It makes it look like when you're just looking at the skull that there is just one big optical hole. Yeah. And, and, and I think there's something to the element of like, I can't remember what it's called, where it's like human brains are like just desperate to see human faces in everything. Yeah. It's why we look at cars and like can so easily like personify them because it's like, oh, the two headlights and the grill, it's like a eyes and a mouth, you know? So we automatically want to make it humanoid. Yeah. And not, you know. Yeah. Pachyderm. And again, if you've never seen an elephant before, let alone seeing an elephant skull without flesh on it. Yeah. Yeah, you would have no way to know what that giant hole in the center of its head is for. It's just terrifying looking. And so, yeah, again, like skeletons, especially when we don't know what they're connected to, terrify us. <laughs> and it's crazy how different, like, the creature can look from the skeleton. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You would never imagine. Like, there's the things that are hidden under the skin and flesh of animals, ourselves included, is just horrible. That's what, like, the the internet kind of had this, um, like, a little bit of a, I wasn't going to say existential crisis, but that might be a little too far, but maybe. <laughs> when When somebody posted a picture of a penguin skeleton. Oh, yeah. Because of how long its neck is, and you can't, when a penguin is walking around, you obviously you can't see its skeleton, and its whole body looks like a neck, frankly. Um, <laughs> so yeah, fossils have constantly... Baffled and befuddled. Yeah, I mean, a lot of, like, fossils of sea life have been found on, like, tops of mountains, which have helped to, like, create great world flood stories. When we know it's like the earth is millions of years old and stuff has gotten squished in sandstone and lifted up out of water and turned into deserts and ice ages and yeah. Earth's history is long and fossils are confusing. <laughs> okay, so moving away from fossil stories, I want to go back to the Oracle of Delphi. Perfect. So, this was the most important shrine in all of Greece, and it was built around a sacred spring. There are a lot of underground happenings in Greece because of all the fault lines. 
So mm. like water springing up out of the ground. That's a geological feature that's important to note. Obviously, we've talked about volcanoes. Yes. That have been happening. It's just kind of an ever-shifting area. And so they had stories that kind of went along with that. Earthquakes and tsunamis that originated out in the water often were associated with, like, Poseidon. So just there was a lot of geological movement and such in this area. The spring that was under Delphi was considered to be the center of the world, the birthplace of all life, um, the navel of the world, or some of the names associated with it. So there was once in the stories a great snake named Python, and Apollo did not like Python. And there are two stories as to why this might be that Apollo particularly did not like Python. So, going back to Zeus, one day Zeus was horny and the absolute worst. Isn't that every day in the life of Zeus? Every day in the life of Zeus. One day, every day, Zeus woke up horny and the worst. (laughs) And he saw the Titan Leto nearby. And he decided, she's hot. Why not? (laughs) So (laughs) he obviously hooked up with her. And Hera did not like this, as is often the case. But Leto was already pregnant. And she was pregnant with twins. Dang. Yeah. So, Hera, obviously very upset about this, cursed Leto that she would not be able to give birth on land to these children. And to make sure that she, like, couldn't stop anywhere on land, Hera sent Python, this giant Mm. serpent, to follow her. And basically chase her away from, like, any location. So Leto was constantly on the move, trying to stay away from this snake. And she was getting more and more pregnant, obviously. So to find a way around this, Zeus found a piece of land that was in the water, not attached to the ground. It was just, like, a free-floating piece of, like, land Mm -hmm. of, like, Place not the underwater. Land being a very loose term uh, because it was apparently like free-floating. So she was on that free-floating island-ish place when she gave birth to Artemis. And the story goes that she gave birth to Artemis first and Artemis was like mature enough to help her in those nine days As she labored to give birth to Apollo. Basically, ever since that, Apollo was not happy with the snake. He wasn't happy with a lot of people. There's a lot of bad blood in this family. (laughs) But Python was said to, like, hang out in this area of Delphi. Some people said that uh, the snake would even, like, 
like give prophecies. Uh, but Apollo hated this snake, and so he <laughs> he killed it. He killed it as revenge for what it he for what it had done to his mother. The other story, like a good son should. So, in some versions of the story, or kind of like in a second story, the snake python was chased by Apollo to the Oracle of Gaia at Delphi. And then in other stories, Python was the main Oracle of Gaia at Delphi, and um, Gaia wasn't allowing Apollo to have his own oracles there. But no matter like what the story was, Apollo killed Python and displaced the Oracle of Gaia so that it was now a temple of Apollo. The priestesses who were there were his priestesses. And there was one who was the main prophetess of Delphi. And so the priestess of the Oracle of Delphi became known as the Pythia obviously based off of the name Python that was killed there that also may or may not have been able to prophesy depending on like which story. Because again, kind of like what I said at the beginning is like a lot of these stories, there are different regional ones and throughout time of like different takes on like the same story because they change. I mean, kind of like what we talked about with like vampires and depending on what region they happened, they had different attributes because it folklore is very dependent on like (laughs) the area and what people have decided inside of like certain areas. But anyway, all of that together, the role of the Pythia went from different women from about uh, 1400 BC to AD 380. And Apollo, the god Apollo, could speak through Pythia. And so kind of what would happen is once a month, people could come to the Oracle of Delphi to ask questions and it sounds like there was some kind of like order in which people could come and ask questions like there was like priority Mm -hmm. where you had like greek rulers greek peasantry like greek just everyday people and then non-greek rulers could come and then other outside people Mm -hmm. So once a month they could go and there was kind of a ritual that would involve, it sounds like throwing water like onto a goat and depending on how the goat responded to that would tell you whether Apollo was like ready to speak through the Pythia. And so if it was, if it was a good day, according to the goat and Apollo, the people would ask their questions, tell the Pythia what the, what was going on and yeah just what what the wisdom they were seeking was and such and she would go down into the lower levels of the uh building 
that they had into a private room. And what she did in there was a secret. The only time when you would find out what, or a person could find out what she did in that bottom basement area Mm -hmm. alone was when a new Pythia was being trained. The day that she was going to become the new Pythia is when the two would go down together into this basement, hash out whatever they needed to talk about or sort out whatever needed to be taught about. And then the new Pythia would then know what it was. And so it's been a mystery, kind of like what went on down there, but then they would always come out in kind of a trance-like state and tell what the god Apollo wanted to be told. And usually it was very kind of like, cryptic and mystic and it wasn't ever kind of like definitive so much as it was just like an open-ended kind of suggestion so there was one priest at the temple of apollo named plutarch who attributed pythia's prophetic powers to some kind of vapor that was coming out from a chasm in the ground Hmm. And that was kind of the only hint of kind of what went on down there below yeah. was just this this idea of like vapors from like a chasm in the ground that would put these women in this like trance-like state. And in 1927, there were some French geologists who went to um, survey the Oracle Shrine to see if anything about what this guy had said kind of like held mm-hmm. up. And in 1923, they kind of concluded that there, you know, this, this idea that like vapors or gases from nearby volcanic activity could have been causing something. They, they debunked it. They said like, no, that's Aww. like not real. That's not, that's like a thing. Oh, don't worry. Oh, about I was like, I want to know what gases is going on here. <laughs> so inside of the encyclopedia of geology, um, it said in 2002, a team of archaeologists and geologists confirmed a long discounted classical Greek tradition. Again, in 1927, mm-hmm. these French geologists had discounted it. So it says in 2002, a team of archaeologists and geologists confirmed a long discounted classical Greek tradition that the priestess possessed by the god Apollo at the Oracle of Delphi was inspired by fumes emanating from a crack in the earth. The team discovered that intoxicating methane and other gases escaped from fissures at the ancient site of the Oracle. Hmm. So they confirmed it. They confirmed What did the it. French think was going um, on then? Come on, guys. Those French archaeologists or whatever they were. So what had happened was that the city that had been built up since this had happened was using the groundwater, the, uh, the groundwater that was coming from the spring. Uh-huh. And they were depleting the water reservoir that was underneath. And so the gases weren't being pushed up as much. Gotcha. And what's interesting about this is that this kind of thing was happening earlier because 
even people a long time ago were using that water. And as the population was growing, they were using more of it. Yeah. And people were noting in the back in like 300 AD, they were noting that it was the power of the Oracle was becoming like less and less like frequent. Oh, wow. That's so cool. And so, yeah, it was basically (laughs) all of the gas that they were inhaling (laughs) was not being pushed up as much. And so they weren't able to go into these like trance-like states. That's so funny. I love like the the yo-yo of like truthiness that I'm on as far as like, there's no truth to this story. There is truth to this story. Because it's like, obviously it's not like some supernatural like being or creature, but it is like there is something happening yeah. there. There is a power in the earth that is putting people into this like trance and they're like, oh, the the power is like depleting. And it it was because of things yeah. going on in the town that it was like was making the effect less and less. It's like it's it would be so easy to just dismiss that as nothing. But it was something like something was causing it. It's just like amazing that they were able to. Yeah, figure I it mean, out. because like people could go back to saying like, oh, Obviously, these oracles weren't experiencing anything and they were just lying. Yeah. You know, like, you know, yeah. But it goes back to what we've talked about it in stories of like experience based yeah. story where it's like, no, these women were experiencing something. They were going into a trance light state because of the gases that they were inhaling. But they they were going, they were experiencing something. They weren't faking it. They were going into the ground, experiencing something that they couldn't explain, except, you know, when this one priest of Apollo said, oh, it's a vapor. There's a vapor coming out of the cracks in the ground. But other than that, you know, like, they didn't know, you know, how gases interact with, like, the human body or whatever. And so they were experiencing something. Yeah. And whether or not you want to believe that, you know, it was making them more open to the experience of receiving inspiration from a God or not, whether you want to believe that or not, it was happening to them. Yeah. And there's a geological explanation for why that was happening to them. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So I'm... I'm so happy that people have found these like geomythology stories as like interesting, fascinating um, as I do, because they, it, it is incredible how we can link these stories that are very, very ancient to things that people were actually experiencing and how they were like using the knowledge that they did have to describe and understand like the world around them and that it can lead geologists to re-examine different things. Like in 2002, these geologists going to look and as they were looking, they were able to find new fault lines that intersect directly below the Delphiac temple (laughs) and they were able to learn more about how 
the landscape of Greece is shifting and moving on the tectonic plates and how it has obviously for millennia been shifting on these tectonic plates. And like, it, it's just amazing to me how these stories can intersect with science and helping us to better understand how ancient people saw the world around them. So I'm so glad people recommended this. I'm sure we're going to do more geomythology stories because they're, they're so fun. Thank you for listening to The Fairy Tellers. If you enjoy what we're doing, please leave us a review or share us with your friends. Also consider supporting us on Patreon for access to exclusive bonus content, including outtakes and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash thefairytellers. Special thanks to Andrew Foray for our music and to Clarice Inge for our artwork. And of course, a big thank you to all our patrons. Without all of you, this show wouldn't be possible. Fairy tales are always more interesting when something is added to them. Each new telling recharges the narrative, making it crackle and hiss with cultural energy. Maria Tatar Oh no. Um, I will not hang up on you, Jeff. Okay, so disconnected. So hopefully you don't stop your recording. Keep recording, Jeff. He can't hear me. This is just me talking to myself like an insane person.